The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. But those who hate him, he will repay to their face by destruction. He will not be slow to repay to their face those who hate him. Therefore, take care to follow the commands, decrees, and laws I give you today. If you pay attention to these laws and are careful to follow them, then the Lord your God will keep his covenant of love with you as he swore to your ancestors. He will love you and bless you and increase your numbers. He will bless the fruit of your womb, the crops of your land, your corn, new wine, and oil, the calves of your herds, and the lambs of your flocks in the land that he swore to your ancestors to give you. You will be blessed more than any other people. None of your men or women will be childless, nor any of your livestock without young. The Lord will keep you free from every disease. He will not inflict on you the horrible diseases you knew in Egypt, but he will inflict them on all who hate you. You must destroy all the peoples the Lord your God gives over to you. Do not look on them with pity and do not serve their gods, for that will be a snare to you. You may say to yourselves, these nations are stronger than we are. How can we drive them out? But do not be afraid of them. Remember well what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt. You saw with your own eyes the great trials, the signs and wonders, the mighty hand and outstretched arm with which the Lord your God brought you out. The Lord your God will do the same to all the peoples you now fear. Moreover, the Lord your God will send the hornet among them until even the survivors who hide from you have perished. Do not be terrified by them, for the Lord your God, who is among you, is a great and awesome God. The Lord your God will drive out those nations before you, little by little. You will not be allowed to eliminate them all at once, or the wild animals will multiply around you. But the Lord your God will deliver them over to you, throwing them into great confusion until they are destroyed. He will give their kings into your hand, and you will wipe out their names from under heaven. No one will be able to stand up against you. You will destroy them. The images of their gods you are to burn in the fire. Do not covet the silver and gold on them, and do not take it for yourselves, or you will be ensnared by it, for it is detestable to the Lord your God.
do not bring a detestable thing into your house, or you, like it, will be set apart for destruction. Regard it as vile and utterly detest it, for it is set apart for destruction. This is God's word. Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Matt Fuller, if we've not met. Um, thank you for bringing us such a cheerful reading. And um, well done particularly to those who have made it uh, with newborns for the first time. It's always, uh, always a challenge. But let me lead us in prayer as uh, we turn to uh, well, a, a problematic text, I think. Let me, uh, let me lead us in prayer as we look at it together. Our great God and Father, we know that you do not waste your breath and you do not say things which are pointless. And here we have your words and at first glance we're a little bewildered by what it says and what it means. But we know it's for our good. So please help us understand it and please address it to us, we ask, for our good, for the honour of your name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Look, here's a passage of the Bible that is not without difficulty, I think, and acutely so for modern ears. But it's here to warn you and me about the dangers of compromise, the dangers of religious and moral compromise. That's why it's here. And that is a danger that churches have been susceptible throughout, uh, throughout history, You think back to the 1930s when both uh, Roman Catholic and Protestant churches in Germany were compromised and they worked with uh, a Nazi state. And it's easy uh, from our point in history to think, well, how did you do that? How did you say what's going on is okay? How how did you condone that uh, in front of you? Um, And historians just say, look, there's a number of reasons why they could. There's shared beliefs on some issues. Christians and Hitler thought that the settlement after the First World War was unfair and unreasonable, so there's some sort of shared beliefs. Both were anti-communism, the church and Nazi state, so you think, well, we can work together on that. So there's some shared beliefs, would be one area. Uh, Fear would be another one. Uh, Hold on a minute, if we push back too hard, we're going to miss out. Became, we're going to be arrested, became, we're going to be imprisoned, became... We may lose our lives. So shared beliefs in some areas, fear. And then thirdly, lots of the Christian leaders are saying, well, look, it's not ideal, is it, over there? But we can still get on with useful things. We can still tell people about Jesus. So let's just ignore what's going on over here and and do the useful stuff over here. Okay, Those three, I think historians would say that the most common factors, what happens, shared beliefs, fear, uh, and we can still do useful stuff. Striking, you look at the history of the Dutch Reformed Church in South Africa, and it's pretty much the same. Shared beliefs on on some issues, undoubtedly. Uh, Fear, we'll we'll lose our influence. We'll become a a, a tiny minority. We may even be pushed out of the country unless we back an apartheid regime. And, well, look, this sort of racism, apartheid, it's not ideal, is it? We know that. But we can still tell people about Jesus. But they just carry on with the same. It was more controversial would be to say that Christians in the United States at the moment are having that sort of debate 
so some would say, how can you work with a president like that? It's because of your fears. It's because you think you can still do useful things and you have shared beliefs and that debate rages and that's not my debate. But those three, they're quite common in history, I think. The church, the Christian church, compromises because there's overlap on beliefs in some things. Well, if we don't, it could go badly for us. And well, we could still do some useful stuff in telling people about Jesus. And here's a text that says, well, hold on. You want to be very careful about that. If you're just joining us today and wondering why on earth have Deuteronomy 7 read, it's a good question. But uh, we're spending a few weeks just in this little section, chapters 5 to 11 of Deuteronomy, which is all about really what's going on in your heart. So uh, in one sense, it's just an applic- all application of the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. But really the, the focus in chapters 5 to 11 of Deuteronomy, what is going on in your heart? So last time, the, the big headline over the whole section really is, is uh, chapter 6 and verse 25, you, oh, sorry, verse 5, you shall um, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your strength. That's the sort of headline over the section. And then in the next few chapters, you get these threats. So three times you get the phrase, it doesn't always get translated the same way annoyingly, but three times you get the phrase, don't say in your heart, or be careful lest you say in your heart. Here it's chapter 7 verse 17, be careful lest you say in your heart, these nations around us are stronger than us. Therefore, we need to compromise with them. We'll see next time, chapter 8, verse 17. Uh, don't say in your heart, uh, look at what I've achieved, all my accomplishments. Uh, and then in a couple of weeks' time, chapter 9, verse 4. Don't say in your heart, I'm righteous. I am morally better than all these people around me. These dangers, just watch out. that you, you, You'll start to think this. You'll murmur it in your heart until you believe it. Here today, chapter 7, verse 17, be careful lest you say in your heart, Israel, the peoples around us are too strong, we can't resist them, we have to compromise. And that looks pretty similar for you and me today, if we're Christians. The, 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 the warning of chapter 7 in Deuteronomy would be, don't say in your heart, oh, look, in the, in the UK, say, in London, uh, Christians are such a small, a weak group. There's no way we can stand up to the, the, the cultural pressures upon us. We just have to blend in. We just have to compromise with the peoples around us. They say, sleep with anyone you want. Well, we just need to do that. You can't resist it. The, the, the culture says, kick out all immigrants. Well, you just got to run with it. You can't resist it. The cultural pressures are too strong upon us. We can't be distinctive. Don't say that. Don't say that in your heart, is the warning of chapter 7. Now, before we really get going, let me just try and give some context here or, or say two things worth being clear on before you come to a, a controversial text, I guess, such as this one. The first of scribble the note, the first is that Israel here, in this point in history, Israel is the hope of the world. Israel has to be clearly, distinctively followers of the Lord. That's the only hope the whole world has got. If you just turn back chapter 4, verses 5 to 8, just let me read you uh, what's been said already, chapter 4, verses 5 to 8. 
back on page 182, Moses says to the people, look, I've taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God has commanded me, so you may follow them in the land you're entering to take possession out of it. Okay, you've got to obey these rules. Why? Verse 6, observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations, the people around you, who will hear about these decrees, laws, and say, so the watching world looks upon Israel and says... Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them? The way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him. What other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I'm sending before you today? Or to put it simply, Moses says, look, what's meant to happen is if, if you follow the Lord and you, you are distinctive, others will look on and go, golly, that's interesting. Their God listens to them, and, and their God speaks to them, and they do what he says. And, and actually, I look at their community, and it, and it functions much better than ours does. We, we need to take their God seriously. That's what's meant to happen. Israel is the lighthouse, the, 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 the beacon, the, the only source where you can look upon, ah, oh, okay, now we see how we're meant to live. So if Israel is compromised, the world is lost. That's the thinking here in Deuteronomy. And of course, the New Testament will put it in similar language in 1 Peter 2. Live such good lives amongst the Gentiles, Christians, that though they may accuse you of doing wrong, they'll see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. They'll look upon you and go, oh, that's interesting. Their God is interesting. I haven't seen it for a long while. I don't know if you've ever seen the film, uh, The Life of Others. You've got to... You've got to be sort of vaguely art house to enjoy it, uh, a subtitle film. But um, it is a terrific film set in, uh, the 1980, in Berlin in the 1980s, uh, focusing really upon the East German secret police, the Stasi, operating in a communist state. And you see uh, the two main protagonists. There's a Stasi officer, Gerd Wiesler, who is the sort of high, he's the sort of blue-eyed boy of the Stasi. He's given the case or, or the task Wiesler uh, uh, of spying upon George Drayman, who is suspected of anti-communist tendencies. So uh, you see uh, uh, Gerd Wiesler and his colleagues, they set up all their, their bugging equipment, obviously not cameras, uh, but audio, uh, with big cassette tapes, you know, ooh, recording everything that's said. They have their little, they drill ooh, little spy holes, and they're, and they're looking through and observing what's going on. But a strange thing happens as Gerd Wiesler sort of spies upon George Drayman. He says, yes, he is, anti, he is anti-communist. He's writing anti-communist materials. I see that. And yet, I like this man. The, the way he treats others is very good. His selflessness is very impressive. And so Weisler, the Stasi officer, he knows that George Drayman is an enemy of the state. But actually, he protects him. He covers up for him. He changes sides functionally and joins him. Because he looks upon the man's life and says, I want to be with him. I want to follow his way of life. That is what Israel is meant to do. Live distinctively so the other nations look on and go, we want to be like them. We want to join them and follow their God. Now that cannot happen if they're compromised. So Israel's the hope of the world. 
And then let me just uh, briefly mention, in one sense, the shocking issue of this text, the destruction of the tribes that live in Canaan. Just briefly ask you, this is the second thing, what, what, what is actually commanded and why is it commanded? Back in chapter 7. What actually is commanded? Verse 2 of chapter 7. When the Lord, is, your God, has delivered all these nations over to you and you've defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Okay, that seems quite clear. But then he goes on, make no treaty with them, show, no, show them no mercy, do not intermarry with them, do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. It's quite hard to marry someone if you destroyed them completely. So it starts to become ambiguous what destroy them totally means. Particularly last time in chapter 6, verses 10 and 11, um, Moses had told them, you're about to inherit all the wealth of the nations around them. Well, it's quite hard to inherit everything if you destroy everything. So the picture gets a little more confusing. And so the answer seems to be, what actually are they commanded to do? Well, it's at the end of chapter 7, verses 25 and 26. Don't be ensnared by what the other nations have got. So verse 25, the images of their gods you are to burn in the fire. Don't covet the silver and gold on them. Do not take it for yourselves or you'll be ensnared by it. It's detestable to the Lord your God. Do not bring a detestable thing into your house. So what is it that's really to be devoted to destruction? It is primarily the gods of the Canaanites. Primarily. But alongside that, some of the people obviously do. When you read the narrative of what happens when they invade the land, a lot of the Canaanite soldiers, they are just all completely wiped out. And so alongside what is commanded, this destruction certainly of the things that would lead them astray, is we have to recognize here is a judicial sentence. You read elsewhere in Deuteronomy chapter 12. You can read the secular histories of the time. Canaanite religion was abhorrent. They sacrificed their children when there was a time of famine. When they were invaded, they'd sacrifice their kids as an offering to their gods to placate them. So this is not 21st century London. This is abhorrent. And the Lord says, now here is my judicial sentence upon wickedness. Those people... They must die. You can't live next door to someone who sacrifices their children without it affecting who you are. You don't join in with them necessarily, but as soon as you allow that, permit that. As soon, if you're not outraged if the person living in the house next door to you kills their own kids, morally you are gone. And so God says, you, gotta, you can't just live with that. You can't just have them next door to you. You've got to get rid of them. But what we want to say, or try and summarize a chapter such as this, or what's going on, uh, the, 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 the destruction. I'd want to say in simple terms, it's limited. So only four cities actually get completely destroyed when you read through the book of Joshua. It's fairly limited what happens. It's judicial. It's a moral sentence on an abhorrent practice, child sacrifice. And it's a unique time. Israel was entering its promised land. 
For us now in the 21st century, Christians don't have a physical homeland. It's not the UK. It's not Israel. We don't have a physical homeland. We have a land, a promised land of heaven. That's what we're looking forward to. So there's nowhere we want to invade and take possession of. And in simplistic terms, in the New Testament, it would certainly say, Christians, you don't kill those who oppose you. You die for them. You give your life. You sacrifice for them. So even though it's an extraordinary chapter in one sense, you'd have to say it's limited, it's, a, it's judicial, and it's a unique moment in history. All of which means it's very different for us now. But the principle of the chapter is don't compromise with pagan gods. Don't politically or don't morally, spiritually rather, compromise. You've got to maintain distinctiveness. Okay, let's pick up pace. So we're going to uh, actually move through the chapter very quickly, or try to. Uh, don't serve other gods, 1 to 16. Don't fear other nations, 17 to 24. And you've got to remember you're a treasured possession. Okay, don't serve other gods, 1 to 16. Don't fear other nations, 17 to 24. And you've got to remember you're a treasured possession. First then, don't serve other gods because the Lord has chosen you. Let's pick it up again at verse 3. Uh, do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. Why not? For, because, verse 4, for they will turn your children away from following me to serve the other gods. But the Lord's anger will burn against you. You'll turn away. Verse 5, here are the things that are real dangers. Verse 5, this is what you are to do to them. You're to, see how it's all religious, actually. You're to break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their Asherah poles, burn their idols in the fire. Canaanite religion was often sexualized. So if you wanted it to rain, you'd go to uh, a temple, a little shrine, and there'd be uh, uh, phallic poles representing uh, or stones for Baal and other things for uh, uh, Mrs. Baal or Ashereth. And uh, you would pay your money and you'd have sex with a, with a temple prostitute or a shrine prostitute rather. And you'd assist to say, hey, Mr. God and Mrs. God, here's what you need to do. If you get it on, the rain will come down. That's sort of the thinking or, or, or the mentality of the time. And there's some appeal to that. Uh, how's your religion? Well, mine looks a bit like this. Well, that's quite nice, says Bob, the neighbor of Joshua. Uh, I can see the appeal in that sort of religion, even I can manage that. Get rid of them all. These little shrines are everywhere, like Starbucks on the high street in Canaan. Get rid of them all. Because, verse 6, you're a people holy to the Lord. You're meant to be distinctive. And the Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his God, his treasured possession. Do you see the temptation was that Israel will be compromised and serve others? That's the temptation. Israel will be compromised and serve others. They had to be distinctive. They're the hope of the world. Uh, The other night, uh, I stayed up too late and watched a terrible film. Um, But, you know, that's all right. Uh, I am legend, Will Smith. Not one of his greatest. 
Probably one of his worst, in all honesty, but a fairly enjoyable trash. It's set in New York, in Manhattan, in a sort of post-apocalyptic future. Uh, uh, scientists have been trying to create a cure for cancer, I think it is. Um, the plot is not sort of complicated. But it all gone wrong, and 90% of humanity is wiped out by a virus, completely all gone, dead. 9% of humanity is just turned into zombies, and about less than 1% is sort of okay, uh, and is vaguely normal. Uh, Will Smith is one of the 1%. He's the only human being he knows alive on the island of Manhattan. Okay? Every, the only other people there are zombies, and they're out to get him. It's sort of not sort of super high-tech at its special effects either. Um, so the zombie, the point is that the zombies are always trying to get him. It's just uh, uh, Will Smith and his dog. He's a doctor. He's giving his life to trying to find a cure for the zombies so he can turn the zombies back into humans. There's a point to this. The, um, the zombies are trying to kill him. Quite often they try and invade his lab and, and smash him. He has to maintain his distinctiveness. The only hope for the zombies is if he gets a cure. He's the only one who can save them. If he allows himself to get bitten, they're all gone. They're all lost. So there are points in the film where the zombies, they invade, they get into his lab and he shoots them. And you think, oh, it's a bit cruel. Those are the people you're trying to rescue. If I'm going to rescue all of them, some of them have to go. Because I've got to stay human. I'm just not sure they thought how profound that was when they made that film. But that is the picture here in Deuteronomy. Israel must stay holy for the good of the world. So you have to say here the short-term aim is the destruction of the dangerous Canaanites. But the long-term aim is blessing for Canaan and the world. That's the thought that's here. So you need to remember Israel, verses 6 to 11, that the Lord chose you. Uh, verse 6, the Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you're the fewest of all peoples. It was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery. Why, Israel, why does the Lord love you? The answer is because he loves you. Israel, what have you done to earn his love? No, nothing. He just, he loves you because he loves you. He set his love upon you. Uh, and your response is, well, just be distinctive, be loyal, be faithful to him. 12 to 16, really, the question is, who, who is the God that gives you all the good things you have, the, the crops, the fertility, the, the land? It is the Lord. But the point here in 1 to 16 is don't, serve other gods. Don't compromise by serving other gods. And, and whatever is causing you to, to drift in that direction to compromise, do what it takes to get rid of it. Or in the New Testament, I guess Jesus would demand similar sort of aggression against pervasive threats to our love for the Lord. So Matthew 6, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Not literally, but do what it takes. Do what it takes to stop you drifting in your loyalty, your love for the Lord. Do what it takes. 
And that's the message here. Do what it takes. Destroy the false gods you may be tempted to follow. Don't marry the people who don't follow the Lord. They'll pull you down. So for you and for me, I guess the question is this. If you're a Christian, what is it that most threatens your wholehearted love for the Lord? What is it that's most likely to make you just drift and compromise and become like all the people who don't know Jesus around you? You just blur and blend in with them rather than be distinctive. What is it that's causing you to drift? And get rid of it. Cut it out. Deuteronomy 7, destroy it entirely. We have a problem at home with moths. We hate them. We hate them. But at the moment, there's lots of them flying around. And of course, we know that if we don't treat them badly, ruthlessly now, come the winter when we pull out the jumpers, they're all bitten and holes because that's what happens every year. So this year, we've gone ballistic. Um, There are moth traps everywhere. It doesn't matter how tired we are at night. If there's a moth scene, you know, out comes the newspapers and... You know, we're slapping these things to get rid of them. I've replastered the inside of one built-in wardrobe. You know, the moths must go because they destroy all of our winter garments. We become mildly obsessed. And they're moths. Don't compromise. Cut out. Destroy the things that will challenge your faithfulness. Don't serve other gods, 1 to 16. More briefly, more briefly, don't fear the other nations, 17 to 24, because the Lord is with you. So here you get to the sort of central point of the chapter, verse 17. Don't say in your heart, or you, you might say in your heart, these nations are stronger than we are. How can we drive them out? But, verse 18, do not be afraid of them. Or verse 21, do not Be terrified by them. Fear. Fear is the issue. You may look around you and think, well, I fear whatever it is, X more than God. Because verse 7, chapter 7, verse 1, these are impressive armies, seven nations larger and stronger than you. But Israel, don't say, well, we can't beat them. We've got to join them and compromise. Today, don't fear the political powers more than God. Or don't let your heart fixate with the boss at work more than the Lord. Don't let your heart worry more about the bully who mocks you when you speak about Jesus more than the Lord. Don't let your heart fixate on legislation that goes through Parliament that that may restrict your freedom. Don't obsess on those things. I mean, do what you can. But don't be afraid. Remember, well, verse 18 is remember God's power. Remember well what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt. Verse 21, don't be terrified. Remember his presence. He's among you. He's with you. And so for us as Christians, you've got to remember those things. His power, he can do what he wants. His presence, he's with you. I guess in Christian language, remember what Christ has done in your life. He's defeated sin and Satan. He set you free from slavery to enjoy him. Remember that. Remember, his presence is with you, even in the most hostile of environments. But but collectively, that's true. But individually, his spirit does dwell within you. You need to dwell on those things. 
So don't say, well, I can't resist the pressure to conform. The world is too much. I'm too feeble. We Christians too few. Don't say that. Stick with him. Be loyal to him. And so that's why the chapter concludes, I think, verses 25 and 26. Don't be ensnared. So don't serve other gods. The Lord's chosen you. Don't fear other nations. The Lord is with you. And remember how he thinks of you. You are, chapter 7, verse 7, his treasured possession. Let me just flick on briefly uh, as we finish to the New Testament where the same language is picked up on. 1 Peter 2. Why don't you turn there with me on page 1218. 1218. 1 Peter 2 picks up on this same language. 1218. Chapter 2 of 1 Peter, let me read from verse 9. Peter says and tells them, But you, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you, as foreigners and exiles, to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives amongst the pagans, Gentiles, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Same truth as Deuteronomy 7. You need to know that you're God's treasured possession. 1 Peter 2, if you're a Christian here today, why does God love you? He he loves you because he loves you. He chose you to love you. He chose to save you in Jesus Christ. He loves you because he loves you and he'll never let you go. You are, well again, his special possession or his treasured possession. That's how God thinks of you. He's set his love upon you. He's invested his love in you. Do you have a treasured possession? We have probably fewer of them as we get older. Maybe the memory, something that reminds us of a loved one. Maybe years ago, 10 years ago, I lose track. 10 years ago, something like that, going on holiday with uh, another family to, uh, to the south of France. And uh, we flew down with our stuff and we hired our cars and, and we drove to the flat and where we were staying. And uh, this other family had a, uh, their, their daughter was two, three. And uh, her treasured possession was rabbit. And um, so we arrived, whatever, how long we journeyed to get there. And we arrived and we unpack and, okay, it's kind of bedtime by the time we've sorted everything out. And, of course, the word goes up, where's rabbit? And, of course, rabbit is the source of all affection. Rabbit is the source of magical sleep. And to go to bed without rabbit. Where's rabbit? Rabbit's in London. Rabbit's coming, darling. He's, she's coming. Uh, at which point, you know, sort of one stays at home. This pointless, fruitless search of the shops of southern France for a rabbit. Surely there must be a super you or a hope on our show, something that's going to have a rabbit similar. And praise the Lord, there is precisely the same rabbit. Unbelievable. Hurrah for multi, or for global trade, etc., etc. Um, there is rabbit. So it comes home and, uh, uh, after a terrible night's sleep in the morning, darling, rabbit's arrived. He got the plate after us. <gasps> rabbit! Mmm! 
That's not my rabbit. And she knew. She knew, although sort of kind of went along with it. But she knew because she'd set her love upon rabbit. Now, forgive me, that's a very feeble point. But the Lord says to his people, to you if you're a Christian, you're my treasured possession. I've invested, I've chosen to love you. I've invested my love in you. I have sent my son to die for you. The Lord Jesus Christ lived a perfect life, died in your place. He's risen for you. You're my treasured possession. And, and you're the hope for the world. And don't forget those things. Know that the Lord has set his love upon you. And says, no, you have to live distinctively. You can, when you know how much I love you, resist the pressure of the false gods the temptations around you and get rid of those things that'll pull you away from me. Don't compromise. But know that I have chosen you to be distinctive for the sake of the world. Let me lead us in prayer. Our great God and Father, we thank you for the strange and wonderful truth that you love us because you love us, not because we're worthy, not because we're deserving, but you have chosen to set your love upon us in Jesus Christ. You've chosen, chosen to make us your beloved, your treasured possession, so that you might enjoy us, but so that also we Christians would live distinctive lives in this world that would cause others to say we want to follow their God. So Father, would we live those sort of distinctive lives? Would we not compromise, not conform with the culture around us for the sake of the world and because you love us? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.